0: of God's Word to Revelation chapter 11. So today we come to the seventh trumpet. We reach the end of one of the major sections of the book of Revelation. And also, uh, we reach the halfway point in the book, Now, this might not sound like much to you, but compared to our study in the Gospel of John, we are flying through this book. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19 is our portion uh, today. Let's uh, read our passage before we begin uh, this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, excuse me, who is, and who was, For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of God, his authoritative word, his inspired word, his sufficient word. Let's uh, pray as we look into this uh, portion, this portion, uh, final portion of the trumpet judgments today. Open our eyes, Lord, as Tim prayed, give us hearing ears. Uh, Jesus, quicken me in the proclamation of the truth. Strengthen our hearts and minds to hear, Lord, and uh, bolster our faith as we read about your reign. Uh, Savior, help us. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Joseph Stalin uh, was the ruthless dictator of the former Soviet Union. (laughs) Uh, He passed away on March 5th, 1953. He was a despicable man, uh, probably responsible for genocide in his very own country. It's reported that Stalin was responsible for the death of nearly, uh, somewhere between five and six million of the people of his nation. He ruled with a heavy hand. Before the date of his official demise he had a close brush with death before this at a meeting of the presidium the presidium was the central committee of or, uh, the executive committee of the communist party in the soviet union at one point in the meeting stalin was livid with fury leapt up from his chair crashing to the floor unconscious many believed he had a seizure At that point. While other Presidium members stared at the prone figure of uh, Stalin in stunned silence, uh, another bureaucrat on the same committee leapt to his feet, began jumping up and down, and danced around Stalin's body, uh, screaming, we're free at last! Free at last! This gentleman on the right side of the screen. Stalin's daughter forced her way into the room, fell on her knees by her father. The dictator stirred, opening one eye. Beria um, fell to his knees, seized Stalin's hand, and began covering it with kisses. He didn't have long to wait, however he he did suffer from high blood pressure and did die of a stroke on march fifth nineteen fifty three Well, similar to uh, Mr. Berry's outburst in the presidium we we see something akin to that in the verses that I've just read this morning. There is an outburst of praise in heaven much like his, and we hear, not in these specific words, but we hear the refrain, at last, at last, at last. What would move you to this refrain? I think some of us said uh, burst out with at last when we heard the CDC's new mask recommendation this past week and you flung yours off and tore it up and crushed it under your feet, whatever. I'm not making a statement. I'm just saying I hate face masks. I guess I am making a statement. (laughs) Maybe you're at last would come with the answer to something you've been praying about for a long, long time. Oh, at last. Maybe a loved one finally came to put their faith in Christ, Maybe a huge bill was paid, uh, something that would lead you to these very words. But none of our reasons could match the reasons for heaven's outburst of this sentiment, finally, at last. This seventh trumpet uh, we read last week, it's a disaster for People who don't know Christ, in verse 14, the second woe or disaster has passed. Behold, the third disaster's comings, soon to come. How can this disaster for, for the earth dwellers, how can the same thing produce joy of that at last in heaven? Why is there rejoicing at the sound of the seventh trumpet? What causes this outburst from the saints and angels in our passage this morning? Well, there are three reasons for their rejoicing at the seventh trumpet. They rejoice at the seventh trumpet for three reasons that we see in our verses today. First, the angels rejoice because of God's eternal reign. At the last trumpet, Satan's rebellion is crushed, Christ's eternal kingdom has come at last. Uh, Let me point out three things here under his eternal reign. Uh, The first thing we encounter in these verses is the end. If you would look at verse 15 again, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. This tells us immediately that the interlude uh, of the of chapter 10 and chapter 11, up to this point, kind of a break. The the interlude is concluded, and now we're resuming uh, the trumpets. We left off with the sixth trumpet at the end of, of uh, chapter 9, uh, the interlude, and now we resume uh, this series of judgments on unbelievers. Uh, Jesus announced that this trumpet would bring the end back in chapter 10 where he said these words that in the the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, here we are, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants the prophets. One man says this trumpet demonstrates that the consummated eternal kingdom of God has finally appeared on earth. We reach in this trumpet the end, the conclusion of history.'" Uh, I guess to be more accurate, I, sh- I should say we've reached the conclusion of history again, because we've already come to this point once before uh, when the sixth seal was opened back in chapter 6. Uh, it said there, for uh, the great day of their wrath is come and who can stand? And that's what we find at the end of the seven seals. We find ourselves at the end when we come to the end of the seals. And here we are back at the same place in the seven trumpets. We come to the same point. Remember, these are are portions that describe the same period of time again and again. So now for the second time, we've come to the day of the Lord. As we proceed further, we'll come to the end yet again at the end of chapter 14, and then again at the end of chapter 16, and then again in chapter 19, John goes back and recycles the same period of time uh, for a total of seven times in the book of relation. Well, this is, this is uh, the second time he's come to the conclusion of history, and he's describing it to us again. Every time he does this, he does it in slightly different terms. He gives us a slightly different perspective. For example, in the seals, we didn't read about the removal of the church from the earth, but that's what we read last week, that Christ removes his church. That's what we find in the seven trumpet judgments. We read about that portion just above this in chapter 11 and verses 12 through 14. With this trumpet comes the end, the conclusion of history the end of all things we see another thing in this reign of god we see the end we also see the angels in this verse uh, verse 15 goes on then the seventh trumpet then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven john doesn't identify them specifically uh, we've heard loud voices from angels previously many believe that these heavenly voices are angels shouting at the sound of the seventh trumpet and rejoicing at the conclusion of history. Uh, Think again. This is not the only time we've heard angels singing. We we heard them singing in in chapter 7, where it said, All angels lifted up their voices and sang before the throne. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so many believe that this is the same uh, group, uh, an uproar from the angelic host. What could cause angels to get stirred up like this? Well, that's a good question. And we discover the reason in the very next phrase Uh, the the thing that gets them stirred up is the kingdom. Look at what it says as verse 15 continues, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Uh, You recognize these words perhaps uh, from the hallelujah uh, chorus. This is why they're shouting. Uh, The reason for their rejoicing is because Christ's kingdom has come at last. I don't know how long the angels have been waiting, but they've been waiting longer than we have. And to see the Son of God come into his eternal kingdom stirs them uh, to to shout and to sing. Uh, Note here that first the rebellion has been crushed the rebellion against christ has been finally crushed verse 15 again goes on to say the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ the kingdom of the world we've seen already uh Satan is, is described in God's word as the prince of the power of the air. In John's gospel, he's called the ruler of this world. And so the kingdom we're reading about here, the kingdom of the world, uh, refers to Satan and all those he's enlisted to join his rebellion against Christ. It consists of the nations and countries and and rulers who Satan has enlisted to challenge God's authority and rage against his king. Uh, John's called this before the great city, which we read about in the last couple of weeks. In the chapters ahead, he'll refer to this same kingdom as Babylon, uh, which we'll see crushed. But first... Uh, The reason uh, the angels rejoice is because the rebellion against Christ, the rebellion against God and his authority and his king has finally been eradicated in every sense. There is no foot raised against Christ any longer. It's been put down. Now we can see why the angels are shouting a little bit. The opposition is gone. And not only that, the second shoe to drop is not only has the rebellion been crushed, but of course, as a result, the kingdom is established. And what does it mean when it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ? Does that, the word, do the words has become mean that he wasn't reigning up until this point? Well, No. Of course not. Scripture is clear that God's reign and Christ's reign is is eternal. The Psalms repeatedly refer to the universal reign of God. The Lord reigns in, in the 90s, 93, 97, uh, 95. The Lord reigns is repeated again and again. In chapter 5 of this book, we see Christ crowned as the ruler of the universe. No, he's reigned and the Father has reigned before this. Uh, they always have held complete rule and authority over the universe. But what this says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. What they mean by this is now his reign is unopposed. Now there's nobody standing in the way. Now there's no one challenging his authority. And furthermore, not only is it unopposed, it is now gloriously visible Uh, when he came the first time Christ uh, inaugurated his kingdom the invisible form of his kingdom Christ rules now he reigns in our hearts he reigns seated at the right hand of the father of course we can't see that we see it just described in the word but on this day we will see it. It will be evident. The invisible will become visible. It will become manifest to all. Uh, his kingdom, that's what they mean uh, in, further when they say, has become, it's, now there's no opposition and now it's visible. We see him seated on the Father's throne. And then further, this visible kingdom will have no end. Verse 15 concludes, And he shall reign forever and ever. We hear the strains of Handel ringing in our ears, that glorious chorus that we play around Christmas time of the Messiah. Forever and ever. This is, this is the very thing Gabriel announced to Mary when he came to announce that she was pregnant, uh, Gabriel said, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. I-, I love the way this man puts it. To be sure, God always reigns. Yet that power and authority which he exercises with respect to the universe is not always apparent. At times, it seems as if, as if Satan is the supreme ruler. But once the judgment day has arrived, the full royal splendor of God's sovereignty will be revealed, for all opposition will then be abolished. Then it will be clear to all that the world has become the province of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And I think not only the angels, but all the saints will shout, at last, at last, when all the world's politicians will come to an end (laughs) and all your sorrows are over and death is defeated well this is what's got the angels shouting uh, is God's eternal reign uh, at the end of history at the seventh trumpet So this is the first reason there's rejoicing in heaven, God's eternal reign. There's another reason we see in the next verse. The second reason we hear rejoicing in heaven is because of the saints' eternal reward. Uh, The redeemed believers uh, worship here and give thanks because unbelievers are, are removed, which we've already seen, and believers are rewarded given their eternal reward at last. Two things that I want to point out here. The first thing we find about this reward, we see the elders mentioned again. Uh, the 24 elders that surround the throne of God. Look at verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God. We've seen this group before, uh, back in uh, chapters 4 and 5, who are these 24 elders, some think that it's an exalted group of angels. That, that's possible. But other men think that these elders represent believers from the Old Testament era and the New Testament era. Uh, one scholar says, from the way that they're described earlier in chapter 4, we might conclude that these are humans who've already received what Jesus promised to the churches. For example, they're seated on thrones and that's one of the rewards Christ promises to the churches. These elders are clothed in white, which Christ promised to the church at Sardis. Uh, They're they're wearing crowns in chapter 4, which is what Christ promised to Smyrna. These 24 seem to be humans who have overcome and already conquered uh, those who Christ has already rewarded So the the general thought is these represent believers from all ages, the Old and New Testament era. But then as we go on, we see the elders, and then next we see their worship. Look at verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Just as the angels... Rejoice for specific reasons. So we're going to see the, the redeemed in heaven uh, worship for specific reasons. And, and verse 17 and 18 go on to spell out the specific reasons why these elders have fallen on their knees in worship and thanksgiving. Uh, again, as we've noted with the angels, one of the reasons that causes them to worship is his reign. Uh, Look at verse 17 where they mention something very similar to what the angels uh, said back in verse 15. Uh, Verse 17, the elders saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Again, this is not that he's just started. We've seen, as I mentioned, God and Christ always Uh, sovereign over events of the universe. Again, they're saying begun to reign in the visible sense of it. We can see it now. Begun to reign without opposition against you. But what I want you to see is how the wording of verse 17 is, is put. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Now earlier in the book, John says who is and who was and who is to come. Back in chapter 1, he says to him who is, who was, and who is to come. But it's different here. Who is and who was, and who has already come, and who's already here. Because it says, for you have taken your great power. You have taken hold of your great power and begun to reign. So they're, they're worshiping for the same reason the angels do because uh God is reigning through Christ unopposed. Uh, your enemies have been eliminated, your reign is contested, and your reign is visible. One man says the church rejoices in the fact that the Lord has reached the zenith of his power. Zenith means high point the 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 top precipice of his power reached the zenith of his power and authority, now publicly displayed. So the elders worship for this, his reign. The elders worship second for his wrath. That might sound odd, but that's the second reason they're on their faces before the Lord God, is because his opposition to wrongdoing, that's what wrath is, righteous opposition to, to wrongdoing. It's put on display. Finally, justice is served. Look at verse uh, 18. The nations raged, which sounds like it's lifted directly from Psalm 2. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Uh, this is probably uh, looks forward to, again, the description isn't given to us here, But we know later in the book of Revelation, in chapters 19 and 20, a great battle takes place. And this is probably a a reference to that great battle that will come on the final day. Uh, The nations raged as they uh, aligned themselves uh, to do war against Christ. But your wrath came. We'll read later on uh, in that final battle at the display of God's righteous opposition to human wrongdoing, it will completely eliminate all those opposed to him. It, it says this up in verse 18 at the very end, for destroying the destroyers of the earth, that great city, Babylon, those opposed to him, the, the, the kingdom of the world is, is eliminated. And so they give thanks that his wrath uh, came and eliminated all opposition. They give thanks for a third thing his reign, his wrath, and his reward. These elders fall down and worship because at last believers receive their eternal reward. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, this judgment. Let me read it to you first. Uh, Verse 18 in the middle. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. Paul describes this. Judgment and reward in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due what he has for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is kind of a condensed version of Paul's uh, description. Paul describes it at length, uh, a little more at length and a little more detail in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, these are familiar to you, let me remind you of what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says. It's describing this judgment seat of Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, evident, Uh, for the day, the day, day is capital D, it means this day, the seventh trumpet, the final day, each one's work will become evident for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that Anyone has built on the foundation, survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Each one of us will stand before Christ on the day he will evaluate our work, what we've done in our bodies, whether good or bad if our work survives the fire of his evaluation, I can't think of a more frightful thing than I'm going to have to stand before Christ and give an account of my pastoring. Oh, it makes me careful. It makes me careful. Uh, As a teacher of his word, I'm going to be looked at harder but we'll all be there. And can you imagine the penetrating scan of Christ sweeping over your body? He who knows us without, without even having to investigate. as You stand before him. He evaluates us, whether good or bad. If our work survives, the fire of his evaluating gaze will be rewarded. But if our work doesn't survive, the fiery gaze of Christ will be saved, Paul says, but we'll enter heaven smelling like smoke. And just what will the rewards be? You're familiar with the crowns that Paul talks about in his letters? The crown of for those who long to see the Lord? Uh, we've read about several in the first three chapters. The, the crowns promised to the different churches. Uh, Ephesus is promised that they would eat from the tree of life. In other words, they would receive eternal life. Smyrna was promised that they wouldn't experience the second death. Ano- another way of saying they would spend eternity with Christ in the presence of God. Other, others are promised various different things white garments, purity. Uh, Thyatira is promised a reward of ruling the nations with a rod of iron. And this is so hard to believe. Another way of saying that they would judge the nations along with Christ. Can you imagine such a thing of being accompanying Christ as he returns to earth? Uh, And perhaps some of us they're giving authority to rule them with Christ, with a rod of iron. And Laodicea, I think they're promised the best one of all. Their reward will be to sit with Christ on His throne. It's it's oddly like the end of... Uh, the Polar Express where the kids asked to come up and sit in Santa's sleigh in front of all the elves. Do you think back to that Christmas movie? I know that's a pathetic illustration, but can you imagine Jesus Christ? Well done, son. Well done. Here. I can't imagine Seated with Christ on his throne. If we receive a reward, no matter what it is, I am fairly certain we will be at a complete loss for words. Because God's the one who saves us who turns our hearts in His direction, gives us the gift of faith. God's the one who empowers us to serve Him. We serve the saints of God with the power He gives us. And then at the end, he gives us a reward for everything that He is empowered. Whatever it is, we will be at a loss for words. Paul says it this way, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. This is what... This is what sets the saints, the redeemed, the 24 elders. This is what sets them to singing uh, to thanksgiving is their eternal reward in the presence of God in Christ. Well, there's a third reason there's rejoicing Uh, God's eternal reign, the saints' eternal reward. The third reason we find that there is such rejoicing at the seventh trumpet is because of the saints' eternal rest. There is rejoicing in heaven because believers at last will find complete peace and rest in his presence. Uh, I want to point out two things here. First, I want you to see that we are given unrestricted access to God's presence. Now, we have that through prayer already. God calls us to come boldly before the throne of grace. This is different. Look at verse 19 with me. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant, if you think back to Raiders of the Lost Ark, looks something like this. This is not from Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is an image drawn from uh, the ESV study Bible. Um, This was, you might remember, located in the earthly tabernacle. Uh, It was in the spot called the Holy of Holies behind an immense curtain uh, located in what's also referred to as uh, the most holy place. Here's the curtain. Uh, It could only be accessed once a year by this man, the high priest. You recall on the day of atonement, I think Leviticus 16 explains it, that he would enter. Uh, He would, uh, first of all, uh, put incense on the altar, uh, which would kind of produce a cloud in here so that he couldn't see very well uh, the presence of God. And then he would enter with blood and he would sprinkle it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's also known as the mercy seat. It's a picture that looks forward to Christ's payment for our sin on the cross. Uh, It is thought that God's presence, uh, whoops, wrong button, no. Hang on, I'll get there, yes. Yes that God's presence dwelt above here. He says in Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. It's thought that the, the footstool is the Ark of the Covenant that he referred to, the mercy uh, seat. And this, this is where God's earthly presence uh, resided, his, his glory cloud. And that's why the high priest would put incense on that first altar to, to make it less visible. Uh, And it's also why he could enter only once a year. And that's also why he could not enter without blood to atone for Israel's sins. And maybe you're familiar with that ritual of the Old Testament. And so just think now of what we're reading here in verse 19 and the astounding contrast we see described. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. The place of God's presence kept hidden for so long is now open to every believer redeemed by the blood of Christ. His, his blood poured out on the cross as a payment for sin has purchased you and I unlimited access Uh, to the presence of God, not just through prayer as we experience now, but being able to walk into this uh, symbol of the very presence of God for all eternity. I like the way this, I, I love the way this man writes and how he says it, nothing remains veiled, nothing remains veiled. Nothing remains hidden or concealed. The Ark of the Covenant, so long hidden from view, is now seen. That Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of the superlatively real, intimate, and perfect fellowship between God and his people, a fellowship based on the atonement, and it's now wide open. No wonder they're shouting in heaven. It's similar to this, (coughs) perhaps, this account from uh, this man's experience growing up, and he writes, black and white television was just taking off in the Tennessee mountains when I was born in the early 1950s, and I cut my teeth on some of the locally produced children's shows that were broadcast live from a nearby station. One show was hosted by a cowboy wearing a mask like the Lone Ranger's. Anybody remember the Lone Ranger?" Thank you, both of you. Batman, (laughs) Batman, you know, whoever. He teased us about his true identity, and you can imagine our excitement when he announced one Monday that on Friday's program he would remove his mask. Ratings must have soared that week because all of us tuned in excitedly waiting for the dramatic moment when our cowboy host, would unmask and reveal himself, what did he really look like? Who was he in real life? The day came, then the hour, then the moment. Reaching behind his head, he untied his mask. But to our frustration, just as the mask came off, he turned his back to the camera and we were left no wiser than before. (laughs) But on this day, John says, We will see him as he is. We will see him as he is. No wonder there's shouting in heaven. No wonder there's worship. And what will the benefit be for you personally? with this unlimited access uh we john describes it for us back in chapter 7 i'm going to flip back a page or two and read chapter 7 verses 13 through 17 here's the benefit of of that access listen to him describe it john seven thirteen. uh this is describing uh a scene in heaven Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And as I've said, the tribulation is now. And these people are us. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What we experience with unlimited access is rest. Rest in the presence of Christ. Back when I was attending... uh, in college, Bryan College up in Dayton, Tennessee. At that time, my mom and dad lived outside of Chicago, and the drive home was about twelve hours. And so, at the end of the semester, finals are over. We would leave after the last test, and it's about four in the afternoon. And and before Christmas and Thanksgiving, I had always uh, take uh, people with me who lived up near where I did, and we'd drop them off along the way, and. This one semester uh, uh, before Christmas, I had a really bad cold. My throat was killing me, and I felt rotten. I didn't have a fever, but here I was about to set on this 12-hour ride feeling so horrible. And so we left Brian at about 4, and we stopped at somebody's house in Kentucky to have dinner. It was spaghetti, and I was croaking through dinner talking to people, We got back into the car, uh, drove through the middle of Indiana on I-65, which is just probably, I think, the most boring place in the the United States of America. It's just, I mean, it was dark, but there's nothing to see in the daytime anyways, and it's just flat and dull. And finally, we get up closer to Chicago, and I start dropping people off in the various uh, suburbs of Chicago and Right the sec- Before I went home, I had to drop a girl off at a Denny's at about 3.30 in the morning. And boy, what you see at Denny's at 3.30 in the morning? Finally, her boyfriend comes to pick her up. I make it to my house about, it was I think between 4 and 5 in the morning. My throat's killing me. And f- I can't believe I'm home. And I remember my head hitting the pillow. I was so tired. I felt so bad and it felt so good to lay down. So can you even begin to imagine what this rest will feel like to you when you are able to lay down everything and because you're in the presence of of God with unlimited access to him and he's leading you like a shepherd and leading you to springs of living water and you're drinking and and you take a, a drink of that cold living water and you just let go of everything and you rest. It will be glory. Will it not? we see this unrestricted access uh, here in verse 19. But the second thing we see in verse 19, not directed towards you and me, is unrestrained judgment. If you look in the middle of verse 19, it continues to say, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is another indication of the end, of the conclusion of history uh, all of these things are mentioned in connection with God's throne back in chapter 4. Some of these very same things are mentioned at the end of the seventh seal, another description of the end. Uh, some of these, uh, the, the earthquake I've pointed out to you several times in connection with God's judgment on the last day, this comes from the same ark. Uh, From the very throne of God where we experience unrestricted access to God, unbelievers, by contrast, experience the unrestrained judgment of God. As his wrath is poured out, his righteous opposition to human wrongdoing, as this is unleashed at the seventh trumpet, we see not only our unrestricted access, but again another description of unrestrained judgment on the last day. This is the third reason why we will cry at last. Why we see the saints crying at last is because of our eternal rest. At last we will find complete peace. I know there are many things in this life that have us uh, crying out at last in some form or another. At last, my bills are paid. At last, I found a boyfriend's girlfriend. At last, my company is noticing me. At last, my business is making a profit. At last, vacation time is here. At last, my loved one put their faith in Christ. Many things, many things, some of them very important things, produce this outburst of relief from you and me at last. Or maybe more pessimistically, well, it's about time. But there'll be nothing compared to what we've seen in in these verses this morning. There will be rejoicing and singing. We see this from angels and from the redeemed who cry out at last. Again, they rejoice because of God's eternal reign. And opposition gone. He visibly reigns. Uh, They rejoice at uh, their eternal reward, the believers do. Uh, And lastly, for their eternal rest from rejoicing in the presence of God. So friends, to put shoe leather to this, the first application would undoubtedly be uh, to make sure you're in the right place when you hear the seventh trumpet. And that is that you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you've turned away from uh, your sins, that you've turned away from your self-righteousness, your church attendance, your whatever you think is going to put you in the right place on that day. There is nothing that will except the blood of Jesus Christ that was, that was shed on the cross. You, you, you can't rely on works... To put you in God's presence, you must rely on the blood of Jesus. Trust and rely completely and wholly on His payment for sin. And so, have you relied on Christ? If so, then you will be on the right side of the seventh trumpet. And for those of you Who uh, are so tired of this world and are so ready to go, then hang on. Because this is what you have to look forward to the eternal reign of Christ, our eternal reward. and our eternal rest. As you go home and take your Sunday afternoon and take that brief nap, think how much greater your rest will be after the seventh trumpet. Can you imagine feeling refreshed after you sleep? Sometimes I can't. Here's rest. Jesus, I pray you'd make this truth most precious to us. For anyone here who's never turned to your Son for the forgiveness of their sins, I pray you draw them by the power of your Good Spirit. And for those of us weary, oh, we long for the day of your appearing. It can't come soon enough when we can shed this mortal coil as the phrase is and have unlimited access to you we long for this and comfort us with this encourage us with this help us to keep going because of this jesus do this in us by your good spirit we pray in your name amen